The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Shining in the light of your glory. What song is that? I haven't heard that in years. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, never need to check the dial. You guys know this pretty well, so it works out. Yes. I know. I haven't heard that in a long time. All right. Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to be today, guys. Mark chapter 3, verse 17. Uh, as you turn there this morning, I just want to, once again, just on behalf of our family, thank you for the opportunity to take some time away, turn off our phones. Uh, many of you asked what we did. We really did much of nothing. And uh, sometimes you just need to do that, and uh, we did. Uh, that doesn't mean that, we, you know, our kids slept all the time, there wasn't any argument. You know, vacation's always perfect, right? Because you go on vacation to have the perfect thing you can't have at home. That's exactly how it went. No, it didn't. Uh, you know, uh, kids will be kids. Uh, Simeon and Scarlett shared a room for the first time, which is always an interesting thing. You have two pack-and-plays and a bed in between, and they were throwing their monkeys into each other playing catch, and so... Someone had to referee them every nap and every bedtime, but that is life. So we, we came back refreshed, and we appreciate the opportunity very, very much. Uh, we got to worship last week as you're turning to Mark chapter 3 to buy just a minute here with uh, a church called Friendly Baptist Church. Uh, they were friendly, trust me. And uh, we didn't pay for any shows, but by golly, by God's grace, they had a spe- it was hymn, special music, hymn, special music, hymn, special music, all by uh, Branson Entertainers. So we felt like we got the gospel through a lot of things last week. It was actually pretty neat. So uh, God is good in that way. I uh, just want to remind you that in a couple weeks, we have the privilege of uh, uh, sharing some time as we ordain Gilbert and Beery to the, or, uh, the gospel ministry. Uh, that is new to some of you, that language. Uh, Gilbert has gone through a lot of study, a lot of uh, questioning, and a lot of uh, affirmation that God has called him to the ministry. You say, Darren, he's already serving in a pastor role. True, this is now the official stamp of approval. So, brother, we're excited for that in a couple weeks and to have Brother Paul come and preach, and uh, we'll do all that fun stuff. But we digress ourselves. We're in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. Are you there? Hope you find it. Hope you're there. Uh, as you find your way there, I just want to just take some time with this introduction because I think it's very, very true. But, you know, there's a story about four priests. This could be four pastors. This could be four deacons. This could be four Sunday school. But this, this happens to be four priests. And these four priests were having a friendly gathering. And during the conversation, one of our priests, one of the priests said, you know, we need to confess our sins to each other and pour out our hearts as our people do. So let's do that right now. And in all due time at their meeting, they decided that was a good thing. One of them, one of the priests confessed, liked to, eat, liked to go to the movies and would sneak out when church was away to go watch movies he probably shouldn't watch. The second priest confessed to smoking cigars. And the third priest confessed to playing cards and going to the local casino. But when it came to the fourth, he wouldn't confess. And the other three pressed him and they said, come on, we confessed our sins. What is your secret sin or your vice? And finally wisely the priest said it is gossiping and i can hardly wait to get out of here and go tell everyone what just happened <laughs> Woo. but these are holy men right that would never happen among god's people sometimes god's people don't act the way they profess do they well often the best apologetic for the christian faith is simply acting like a christian and having faith 
is what it is. What a great reminder for us from Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, as we look at John today, who fits this mold to some degree. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything flows from it. You know, God chooses to work through imperfect people to carry out his perfect will. Then often, as we look at these disciples, and if you've been around churches before, you often see these disciples on stained glass windows or uh, uh, colleges named after them, even cities named after these apostles. And that sometimes we are intimidated to walk with these apostles as we have been the last several weeks, to think that God could use someone like me. But these were not perfect men, not at all. If perfection is the criteria to be used by God or anywhere else, none of us would be used by God. Because all of us have warts, we all have flaws, and we all have failures. And that's not a blanket, uh, you're okay, I'm okay, but it is a reminder of how we are even in Christ. Let me just give you an overview of the Old Testament and give you a parade of unqualified men that were used by God. Remember Noah? We think about that cute ark and all the animals, but he got drunk and acted lewdly. Abraham doubted God and lied about his wife and told the king of Egypt that he was his sister, that that, that, that was his sister, and then he committed adultery to have a child. This is Abraham. And then Isaac, his son, the apple didn't fall very far from the tree. He learned to sin from his father and did the very same thing to his wife, Rebekah, and he lied to Abimelech. Jacob, you know this story well, he stole the birthright, didn't he, from Esau and deceived his father and raised a family of, let's be honest, immoral children. Moses, he was a murderer. What he later acted in pride and he struck a rock, he was also forbidden by God to enter the promised land. Aaron led Israel in the worship of a golden calf and was responsible for the, uh, the uh, uh, make love, not war, that happened afterwards, if you want to use the 1960s version. Joshua told, was told by God to destroy the Gibeonites, and instead he makes a treaty with them. Samson was overcome with lust for a wretched woman. David was totally out of control with women. If he saw a woman, woman he liked, he liked He married her, and he collected them like little figurines. He was an adulterer, he was a murderer, and he was a lousy father who couldn't lead his own kids. Solomon was even worse. He was the biggest polygamist outside of 1800s Utah, if I can use that phrase. Isaiah put his trust in a human king. Hosea married a prostitute. Can you imagine the pulpit committee showing up at his house and interviewing him for the church? Hey, how's that going for you, Hosea? Jonah disobeyed God's call on his life. He went west instead of east to get away from the will of God as fast and as quick as he could. And when God rerouted his life and he preached the message to Nineveh and they repented, he pouted about it. He didn't want those wicked Assyrians to be saved, but God used him to bring one of the greatest revivals we've ever seen on mankind in one spot at one time. Elijah was scared of a woman and ran away. Paul was used to kill Christians. Timothy was ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the list goes on and on and on. As you can see, the disciples fit rather well the people of God uses. Peter denied the Lord multiple times. James, we saw a couple weeks ago, was intolerant and prejudiced. And John, today we will see, was narrow-minded and a sectarian. So church, can God use you? If you sin, can God use you? Yes, he can. And that's where the big idea comes from today. It is a reminder that we never, even at our seeming best, can benefit God at all. If he uses us at all, God does, it's by mercy and by grace. And it's no accident 
that he uses people who are broken, who are humble, and who understand that it's not because they are better than the rest that he uses them. He uses brokenness, God does, as a tool in his hand. And it's our sin, it's a sin to allow our past, which God has dealt with, to rob us from our joy and usefulness in the present. Four things I want you to see about the images of grace in the life of a Christian through John. And to be a good Baptist, we've alliterated it out for you. I want to look at four images of grace today. We're going to look at John's family. We're going to look at his favor. We're going to see how he was favored, refresh that. We're going to see the fervency. He was a very passionate man. And we're going to see the fruit of his life. But the one thing I want you to get out of this is, if you're not a Christian, first off, there is no sin so big, so wide, that God cannot save you from. Amen, church? But how often we forget that as we serve God, that when we think, oh man, I've blown it now, God can never use me. That God has used in the scripture one list after another of people who are chiefly unqualified. And all this shows us G-R-A-C-E, grace, grace. This is what we learn. Throughout the centuries, God has used failures, faults, all by grace. And now we see John, one of the greatest men recorded ever used by God. Apart from Luke, who wrote Acts and the Gospel of Luke and Paul, John wrote most of the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John, which if you could pin me down to one book, if you ask me for one book of the Bible, give me the Gospel of John any day. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he wrote the capstone book of the entire Bible, Revelation. He was in the inner circle of Jesus, yet he outlived all the disciples. He was the senior leader of the body of Christ. He died a natural death. But oh boy, he did not start out the way that he ended. But by grace, he became all that God made him to be. Will you join me in standing in honor of God's word today, if you're able, as we read Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 13, down through verse 17. Mark 3, 13 through 17. The ESV, same as the Pew Bible, says this. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also called apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boangres, that is, sons of thunder. As we look at this today, I don't want you to think that grace is cheap. It never is. It costs the Savior his life. But there is nothing, nothing, church, that you have done, can do, will do, that will ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That is the grace of God as we see it in the life of John today. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you so much that while we were sinners, Christ indeed died for us. It was not based on our foreseen goodness. It wasn't based on our ability or perceived ability. It was all by grace. Father, thank you today. As we look at the life of John, Father, may it not just be a biographical or biography channel, discovery channel overview, but Father, as we look at facts and, and this figure, John, who is real, may the faith that he had, Father, challenge us to know you. But Father, we don't pray to be like John. We pray to be fashioned conformed and brought into as you the the potter and us the clay the image of jesus christ father that is hard sometimes and it takes literally cost us almost everything but by grace fit us for heaven lord that we may be useful vessels in our hands we pray this today to the glory of your name in jesus name amen you may be seated
this microphone and I are going to have a battle today. It's been two weeks, so he, he wants to get up. And uh, so anyway, pray for me as I fight the microphone and we fight it together by God's grace. First thing I want you to see this morning, a grace image of Christ in the life of John. It's the grace in John's family, the grace in John's family. As you remember from a couple weeks ago, if you were here, it's been a couple weeks, that this is the time, the only person in this list of the 12 apostles that is given the name of the father of the, the apostles. You see that in verse 16 and 17, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. So John, a couple notes here as we look at his family. John is the brother of James. Now, some of you are like that. You're the younger sibling. You are the one that when you went through high school and you know that teacher who's been there since the, the Stone Age uh, remembers everyone, remembers your brother or your sister, and they treat you just like they treated them, even though you're a unique person. Anyone ever have that happen before? Uh, that's how James was to John. John was the younger brother. He lived in the shadow of his brother, he was, but he was wired like his brother. They came from the same mold, after all. They're always together. In fact, in the book of Mark, they're always mentioned with Peter and James and John are together. But the strength that a younger brother can draw from an older dominating brother is a life lesson that we learn. You know, some families that speak, they speak with their inside voice. And then there are other families you get around, and it's like, give me the earmuffs right now or let me leave because they're so loud. These were sons of thunder. They were called that for a reason. John had to learn, we might say, how to be heard in his family. He had a domineering father, Zebedee. He had a really outspoken brother, James. And here's, Jan here's John, the brother of James. They were also sons of Zebedee. You may remember that Zebedee was a strong-willed man who ran a fishing business on the north side of Galilee, the lake there. It was large enough for him. It was large enough for him to have four partners, his sons, James and John. And if you look down there at verse 17... Uh, verse 16, Simon also, and then Andrew. They were all in this partnership together. John, most likely, we don't know his exact age, but he was probably in his late teens or early 20s, college-ish, high school-ish age. The point is, is that Zebedee was strong enough to be directional with these sons of thunder. Look, you can't just be a father of anyone and be the father of the sons of thunder. You will be a walking mat if you're not careful. The point is, strong sons come out of families where there are strong biblical fathers. But also you remember, perhaps, that his family had his mother, Salome. Salome was the last to the cross and the first to the empty tomb. Even if the men were to fold their tent, she would follow Jesus to the very, very end. She was there at Jesus' death, and she was there at the tomb. Son of Thunder. I don't know if you're looking for a baby name. Gilbert, if you have a boy, Son of Thunder might be the next name that you need to put out there. Your, your wife's do any time. Families have their strengths and their traits are passed down from a hardworking father or mother who is deeply committed to the lordship of Jesus Christ. But that didn't necessarily happen to John. This is how we see sovereign grace in the life and family of John. His parents are a factor that led him this way, but really, ultimately, he became who he became, John did, because of grace, because of sovereign grace. Healthy influences outside of his family also shaped and molded John. He grew up working with Peter and Andrew. Andrew was probably as quiet as a mouse, and Peter was Peter, right? And then James was James. He worked with these men all day long, and God used them to mold him into the man he became to be. You know, it's a very good reminder to us, and you'll see this up on the screen, that we have to let go, church, of the Jesus and me 
isolated, independent Christianity. The Christianity of the New Testament is deeply relational and deeply interdependent. Some of the influences in my family and outside of my family have been used to make me to be a son of thunder. I can identify with John in a lot of ways. The youngest had to have a voice. We're all four years apart. Uh, When one was a senior, one was a freshman. But John was shaped by grace in the circumstances that he was. Many of you would look back over your families and, and maybe you were jealous of other families growing up because you looked and saw, boy, they do this right or that right, and if my family just acted this way, then I could get this or be like this or have this opportunity. Friends, we need to be grateful for the family God's given us. There is no doubt in our minds that John, by sovereign grace, was put in the place and the family and the unique situation that he was to become the man of God that he became as he was. You know, I had a church ask a friend of mine one time, and they said, how do you know you will stay pastor in the church? And the pastor said that he needed to have Jesus in his heart and glue on his feet. Isn't that true? And he said, he said it wasn't a spiritual answer. I talked to this friend this week, but he said, I played football, and part of be- being a football player was knowing how to play hurt, knowing how to play dedicated, knowing how to not fold up your tent when someone boos and drive and drive and not give up until you're in that end zone because that is what it takes in ministry to do. And when the Holy Spirit fills a man like John or a person like you and me who's had some of those traits hammered into him by natural leadings, then God uses that man when he opens his heart to salvation by sovereign grace to be a person of mightiness as John was. Are some families too isolated? Have we allowed our families to become so insular that we have a lot allowed them to be influenced by anyone else? Now, this is not an open book to say, well, you should just throw your kids to the wolves and drop them off on the worst part of town and say, hey, good luck. I'll see you in a while. I'll see you in a week. It's not what we're saying. But friends, you may never know how much isolation may actually be the greatest deterrent to your friends and family. That's not a comment against homeschooling. That's not a comment against public schooling. That's just simply to say that God uses natural men to shape supernatural men and women saved by the gospel to become the people that they are. Your closest associations, church, should always be other Christians. They should be in life, in business, in, in relationship. But have we so, as Christians, distanced ourselves from the outside world that we have become just the holy huddle on the hill where we forget that there is a lost and dying world out there? It is out of that soil that God grows John, James, Peter, and next week, as we'll see, Andrew. You know, I don't know if you can identify with this, but um, there, was a, uh, uh, there was a little boy who said, I'm, I'm sure happy to see you. And he said this to his grandmother, and maybe you remember your grandmother's looking at you like this, but uh, this was the grandmother on his, his, his mother's side. And the young boy went on to say, now, Grandma, maybe Daddy will do the trick he's been promising us. And the grandma was curious, and he said, what is that trick? And she asked, well, I heard him tell Mommy that he would climb the walls if you came to visit. I really want to see him do that. You know, you may have that feeling towards your family. You may have that feeling towards your church family, quite honestly. But as you are raising your families, we are raising our families, may we be a greenhouse that also involves hard knocks and some challenges that come with this world and being hit hard by something to bounce up and bounce back to serve God that is very deeply rooted. His friends, his family shaped him. John's family shaped him, who he was, because he was the little guy 
who when they threw out the food on the table, if you can imagine that analogy, he was the one that got the crumbs because he was the younger brother of a family of a lot of strong-headed people. But by God's grace, God still used him. That's his family. That's a picture of grace in his family. I want you to see, secondly, the picture of grace in John in his favor. The picture of John in his favor. You notice back, if you have your Bible still, back in verse 13, that God chose John to be number three. You know, we live in a day and age where everybody's a winner. You can be in the last place and have the worst time ever in whatever event you're doing and still get a medal. We, we grew up in that society. Everyone's a winner. But in the, in, the, in the divine providence of God, God has numbered out one, two, and three, the closest inner circle of his disciples. John was part of that inner circle. He was number three, chosen by Christ to have access to him. You may recall from other passages of Scripture that when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, we saw a couple weeks ago, that he said to Peter, James, and John, you come here. You are going to see this. You need to see this. And there were inside lessons for James, John, and Peter. You remember we saw a couple weeks ago, too, that at the transfiguration, when Jesus transformed himself, that Peter, James, and John were on there because they needed to know that his power was enough for them. And on the Mount of Olives, when they were saying, look, teacher, at this great building, this great temple, these great things, that James, John, and Peter had insight to know that that building would one day be knocked down. And we know that historically happened around AD 70. So friends, what do we know? Is that in Galatians 2, James, Peter, and John were called pillars of the church. Pillars of the church. There was a favor given to John by way of his position. And being part of the inner circle, we're also getting a double lesson in leadership. He got the double internship. You've ever been in a place before where someone, you're working somewhere, but someone a little senior to you brings you aside and says, let me show you how to do this. You, have you ever had that happen to you before? Where someone takes time out of their busy schedule, their expertise, and pulls you along and says, you know, you're doing it this way and that's fine. Let me show you how to do it a little bit better. It's exactly, in a sense, what happened. Because God was preparing these inner three, Peter, James, and John being the last, for a hardcore boot camp class that was going to be their lives for the rest of their lives. And they didn't have to get up at 5.30 to go to the gym to do it. It was just part of their lives. All of this, friend, was the grace, the G-R-A-C-E of God. John was to play a role, but it originated in Christ himself. And that is a great reminder to us that no matter what favor God has given you, whether you are super gifted in some area, whatever place we serve is by the grace and favor of God. There are no easy places to serve Christ. Only through the sufficiency of his grace to preserve through the difficulties. Why are we allowed to serve Christ at all? You ever thought about that? Why would the God of the universe want puny little people like us to serve him? He doesn't need us. You want to use the big theological term, you know, Gilbert and I have been studying through this. It's the aseity of God. It's the, it's the self-existence of God. He doesn't need us. And it's not because we've earned it. It's all by grace. You were saved, Christian, if you're a Christian here today, by sovereign grace. You were saved not because you had better faith than the next person. You were saved not because you were more lovely. You were saved, if you're saved here today, because God chose you in Christ. See Romans 9, Ephesians 1, among many, many, many other passages. But equally Christian, Ephesians 2.10 says that you also serve by sovereign grace. 
that God has prepared for you certain things in your life that he has put only for you to do. Now that can be taken the wrong way very quickly. We can run and do, well, God wants me to do this and, and forget the church because who needs the church? God's called me to do this. And you can become a Christian that is bent on finding God's will so much to the fault and sin that you neglect the local body God has given you. But our ministries are assigned by sovereign grace. If God called you to clean babies' bottoms in the nursery for the rest of your life at Tower View Baptist Church, but you knew God called you to it, would you be okay with that? If God called you to go to Africa as a missionary, or I always use this as an example, those scientists in Antarctica, you can't save the penguins. Penguins don't have souls. But praise God, they're scientists down there. If we, you want to be the first Baptist evangelical missionary to Antarctica, and God called you to it, you were appointed by sovereign grace. Whatever ministry you hope to have will be by grace. You know, I, I, this next analogy I'm going to share with you is one that you just need to hear. So let me read it to you. It says this, and I stumbled upon this in preparation this past week, and I think it speaks very well. It says, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining, if you can eat the same food every day without grumbling, uh, anyone not do that, if you can understand when your loved ones are too busy to give you any time, if you can overlook it when those who take it out on you, when though no fault of your, your, your own, something goes wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can ignore a friend's limited education and never correct him or her, if you can resist treating a rich friend better than a poor friend, if you can face the world without lies and deceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs. Oh, this sounds like a Christian, doesn't it? You have reached the same level of development as your trusted good best friend, your dog, at that point. Let that sink in for a second. How often are we reminded of what Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7 says? It says, For promotion cometh neither from the east nor the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He putteth down one, and he setteth up another. Psalm 75, 6 and 7 in the old King James. What's my point? My point is, is not to make you feel bad like you're a dog. Not at all. But my point is to remind you that God has used even those best friends we call our dogs to remind us that whatever role of ministry we have doesn't come from ourselves. It comes by the grace of God. And you better believe we're going to complain about it. We're going to fight about it. We're going to talk bad about it. But whatever grace you have been given to serve, friend, is by God himself. If God called you to the worst situation, whatever that is for you, for some of you, that's being a, a ride attendant at the Mamba on World of Fun because you're scared to death of World of Fun and roller coasters. For some of you, that may be speaking and being in a situation where you have to be external when you're internal. I do not know, but wherever God has placed you, be faithful to it. John was given divine favor in so many ways, but he is reminded later on in his life, as we will see next, that it was by grace that he served and it was by favor that he served. Not because of his daddy and his money, not because of his brother and his loud mouth, not because of his business partnership with Peter, but all by grace. Number three, John had grace in his family, 
God put him in the right family at the right time. God showed grace in his favor to prepare John to be a leader in the church, unique and unlike any other. And then he gave him a fervency. Look back at verse 17. I just, you cannot overemphasize this. They're sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. How many of y'all raised all boys in your home, just out of curiosity? Do we have an all-boy home? A few hands go up. Were your boys sons of thunder? Anybody? So, did they have traits of sons of thunder? Some of them aren't sure. You want to answer that publicly. But these were sons of thunder. These were guys. You know, when I think sons of thunder, I think of the old WWF days, you know. I think of Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Rusty Savage, whatever his name was, Randy Savage, you know, the Million Dollar Man, and Andre the Giant. And back in the 80s, you think of these guys in the ring getting ready to pulverize some of the sons of thunder, and they come out and tag team one another, and they do those fake moves. Although, by the way, they're not always fake. My brother tried out for it in Kentucky one time. He was a state champ wrestler, and he said it was hard enough for him. So it is real to some degree. But sons of thunder, these are guys who were named this because they were that. They were sons of thunder. They were fervent. They were zealous. They wanted everything to do with anything passionate. And this is an indication of the fiery zeal. But I want you to know that when they were called sons of thunder, Jesus didn't come up and say, oh, we're going to make you a docile quaint, cultured Christian in America. And you're just going to smile, and life is going to be grand, and life is going to be good. These sons of thunder had to be directed. These sons of thunder had to be channeled. And by God's grace, in John's fervency, he didn't translate them to become a church microphone. Jesus took the raw material of what he gave them in the womb, and he redirects them now in the kingdom of God. For some of you today, you think, I cannot be used because of my past. I cannot be used because I have this bent. I cannot be used. Yes, if it's sin, you need to take that to the cross, repent, and leave it at Jesus' feet, for sure. But God has equipped you, made you as you are through sin and circumstances by grace pulling you through. But what strengths are to be used by God now become under the control of God. And theirs was fervency. They were sons of thunder. Churches and families need sons of thunder. We need, literally, what it means in the Greek, sons of commotion. Sons of commotion. If you've raised boys, you know that's very true. But it should be an encouragement to you moms today. That loud noise that explodes and overpowers everything in your life, it's something that God can use as a mouthpiece for him in a situation that overpowers with the word of God to drown out all other voices. And remember, in Luke 9, 54, the Samaritans rejected Jesus and John asked them to command fire to come down from heaven and to take him out. You remember that? They were going to have their first church official barbecue. And John said, look, these guys have disrespected Jesus. But John had punted past his coverage. We're in football season. I can start those analogies again. The thunder that he had had to be tempered by love. And there's no way God will take away from that thunder. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 37, you remember that they had their mama, James and John did, go up to Jesus and say, would you let my, my son sit at your right hand? Wouldn't that be nice if mama did that? But they need to be tempered in love, but in no way taken away. The only time that he speaks without James or Peter, John says this, Mark 9, 38. I want to ask you to turn there. I'll just read it to you. But John said, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we, that would be James and John and Peter, tried to stop him. And here's the catch. 
because he was not following us. It wasn't that John wanted necessarily to do anything but to teach these people that, to say, look, dude, you don't, you're not in the inner circle. I'm in the inner circle. I'm John. I'm the son of thunder. I'm closer to Jesus than almost anyone else. Who are you to cast out demons in Jesus' name? John wanted to teach Jesus, but this was a true believer in Jesus. It wasn't just a mere formula to throw out the name Jesus in a prayer and poof, whatever they wanted happened. John was so narrow-minded, so zealous as a son of thunder for truth that he was more narrow than anything else. It's like us Baptists saying to our Presbyterian brothers, oh, you sprinkle babies, you must not be a Christian. Or Presbyterians looking at Baptists and say, oh, you, uh, you, uh, you're not as serious as we are, so therefore you cannot be a Christian. John had a problem. He was a bigot, guys. Well, they're not part of us. How would you do this? He was a son of thunder. Jesus, this isn't what you said. We are your disciples. Let us do the work. But John had to be reminded as a grace in his life that even with his fervency, God had to channel that and take it to be his own. John was so zealous that he needed to be tempered. Friends, what a great reminder that you don't have to bring the fire. You don't have to bring the thunder. You don't have to bring the whatever. Just bring the gospel. It'll do the thundering by itself. Mark 9, 39 through 41, that story continues. And Jesus said, don't stop him, referring to the guy John tried to stop for casting out demons in Jesus' name. For no one does a mighty work in my name, Jesus says, will soon be able afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us is for us. For I say to you, Mark 9, 41, that whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Jesus affirms this man that John tried to cast out of the ministry of Jesus as a true believer. But he says in verse 40, there's no middle ground. You're either with me or you're against me. And I'm using an old reference here, but I knew this growing up. John is like Barney Fife with a pistol and some bullets. Do you know what I'm saying? Especially older folks. He needs Andy to come and take the bullets away from him because he's a danger to himself and to society. If you don't know what that is, look it up. Before God could use him, the thunder had to be tempered, not to take the thunder away. But John would be the revelator. John would be the one who wrote about the most climactic book that most of you all want me to preach about, which is Revelation. And because he was a political enemy of Rome, his voice was so loud, John's was, that John became no one but who God created him to be. But he had to have a velvet glove around his fist of iron if God was going to use him properly. He had great fervency. It's like the young attorney who started his first practice. This is not a young attorney. He actually looks like he's near retirement in this photo, but uh, uh, that's the best stock photo I could find. And this young attorney was ambitious and excited about how great his firm soon would be. And his phones had not yet been hooked up, but quickly he quickly picked up the phone because he heard footsteps coming down. And he wanted to look busy. And just as anyone would, he picked up the phone and dignified as possible said yes this is attorney jones i need to do my depositions today and the man walked into his office yes can i help you yes i'm here to turn on your phone service sir can i help you with that <laughs> fervency undirected can lead to some very embarrassing moments Friends, there has been grace in John and his fervency. He wanted to do what God want, he thought God wanted him to do, but it was through much trial that he would find 
much trial, that he would find that there was fruit still to come. Let's look at that as we close here in the next few moments. Uh, the slide is not correct, but the last one should be grace in his fruit. Fruit, as in F-R-U-I-T, fruit. I want you to turn with me, if you will, to John 13. John 13, as we close here in the next few minutes. And I want you to look how God used this grace in John's family, the grace in his fervency, the grace in his uh, favor, all these things to make him into the man that he was called to be. Son of thunder, yes, but God was starting to knock off the rough edges of John. John chapter 13. Uh, well, no, this was written by John, the gentleman we're looking at today, the apostle. But I want you to start in verse 1. Start in verse 1. I'm just going to give some comments as we go. Verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, John 13, 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus, he loved them to the end. You know, it's very interesting here that it says he loved for his own. There's a general love of Christ for all mankind, for God so loved the world. But here, especially, John indicates that there is a special, eternal, redemptive love for those who are his sheep. There will come an end to the general love of God as his people are, are, are cast away from him forever. But those who are his own will love them to the end, and that is what happens. Go down to verse 2, and it says, In my father's—actually, oh, that's uh, John 13. Wrong chapter, Darren. Here we go. John chapter 13, verse 2. During supper, when the devil— had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God, was going back to God, rose from supper, and he laid aside his other garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and began to pour water into a basin. Look, uh, I just want to note this before you go on. Just because Jesus is the Son of God, he is God, he's God incarnate, that Jesus himself is modeling, yes, for all the disciples, yes, for the Bible, for everyone who will ever read this until he returns. But he is especially, I think here, speaking to the life of John. Isn't it interesting that John is the only apostle who writes about this instance of the washing of the feet? You don't see this in Matthew. You don't see this in Mark. You don't see this in Luke. John, being the author of the gospel, remembers this event. It's so profound in his mind what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is not concerned about dirty feet. He's concerned that the son of thunder and, and the disciples have proud hearts. And even as the son of God, he is ready to show them what they are going to do. So if you go down, uh, actually down to verse 14, we're not going to read the whole episode here, but if you go down to verse 14 of chapter 13, I want you to see this. And it says, actually starting in verse 12, Now when he had washed their feet, Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. This man, John, who is so fervent, who is watching this very thing, is starting to internalize what God is doing in his life. He's starting to see that the truth that he has been taught, the time it has taken for those truth to settle in, and the trials that he has gone through with Jesus are coming to a head. Go down to verse 25, John 13, 25. 
It says, so that disciple, leaning back against Jesus and to him, said, Lord, who is it? Who is that disciple in verse 25? Who is it? It's John. Do you know through his whole gospel, John is so humble at the love of God, he cannot even speak first person about it. He has to write like an academic scholarly writer would write when you say this writer thinks or, or this author says because you can't ever put the I in formal papers. John has had so many rough edges paired off and polished down and the thunder brought under the Lord's control that this bull in a china shop is now learning that Jesus Christ is head and Lord of all. It's power under control. He's so humbled, he can't even write his own name. He no longer is tackling his teammates, but he's one who now talks of the truth. Go to chapter 19 of John, if you will. John chapter 19. We just have a couple more things and we'll close. John chapter 19, verse 26. Very familiar passage. Many of you are very, very familiar with this passage. Jesus is dying on the cross. It's one of the last seven sayings of Christ. Um, this is what it says, John 19, 26. When Jesus saw his mother, and that, of course, being Mary, the Virgin Mary, who's his mother, and who wasn't a virgin after that, but his mother Mary. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And verse 27, then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her, own, took her to his own home. Who is that disciple, guys? It's John. John is the disciple. Again, he cannot even write his own name because the love of God, as he reflects on this probably some 30, 40 years after Jesus' death, when he's a senior citizen by our today's standards, he looks back on this. You notice Jesus didn't entrust his mother to Peter. I mean, Peter would take care of her, right? He'd get everyone out of the way. James could, talk his, James could talk everyone down. It was John that became the keeper of Mary until she died. We don't know how long Mary lived. The last uh, reference we have to her is in Acts 1 uh, at the early church. But uh, at any rate, John became the one that Jesus sent everyone to when they were in trouble. Who was it that took in Peter after his bad failing? John. Who was it that took in the mother of Jesus? It's John. Who was it, if tradition holds true at the later end of his life, who was known as the disciple of love? It's John. Who was the one that used the word love over 70 times in his writings? It's John. But wait, this is the son of thunder. This is the guy that's going to pile drive someone and do the, uh, you know, the rub them against the ropes and boom. And, you know, this is John. But by sovereign grace, he's been changed. And his heart has been changed. His attitude has been changed. Everything about him has been changed by sovereign grace. He's now become, well, let's just say it as it is. Guys, he was a black and white disciple. And I don't mean that in a cultural or racial way. I mean that in a cut and dry way. He was the one that said, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He had a line in the sand, but he did it with love. With great love. Love that cost him much of his life. The Lord takes people like John and those who don't raise their voice. Be encouraged to know that God does that to people and that he throttles them down.
to where he wants them to be. Two quick things as we close. What do we learn from this? We learn that it's better to have a small faith in a great God than a great faith in a small God. The object of our faith, not its amount, is what is most mighty. I have to think, and I'm reading between the lines here, I, I confess that, that John had to really question what God was doing in his life. God, but I'm a son of thunder. How can I take care of all that you want me to take care of? God, I, I, God that's not me. I, I'm the, you know, let's get out there, and this is the way it is kind of guy. How can I have a heart that loves people, Jesus, like you did at that night you washed my feet? You have to think. And again, I'm reading between the lines here. I don't have a chapter and verse here. But there has to be some logical conclusion here that John struggled with this, guys. We don't know when it clicked for him. Clearly, between the end of Jesus being arrested and the death on the cross, less than 24 hours, something clicked. Something just flooded his soul so much that, he, or maybe he stood there aloof and said, I, I, me, really? I'm going to take care of your mom? How is this? You know, I don't know. But he had a small faith in a great God. Because through time, trial, and truth, God had raised him up to be the man that he was called to be. It's also a great reminder to us, lastly, and I'll end on this, that we are to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. That you can turn on CNN right now, Fox News, uh, Huffington Post, whatever you read on your apps or your TVs, and there's a lot of things, just people talking, even... You know, even my, uh, my best channel out there, ESPN, has people talking all day. You know, the Royals got to get a best pitcher for the trade deadline and this and that and this and that. And some of these people about sports, they will bite each other's heads off just to prove a point. It's, it's ridiculous. It's sports. I love sports, but it's, it's sports, right? Friends, how much more in the body of Christ? Sometimes we have to speak the truth. We have to be poignant. We have to be as it is. But may we do so with love. It's not enough to know the truth. It's not enough to speak the truth. It has to be undergirded with love. Trust, truth must be spoken in love. And you and I will always learn that lesson when time, truth, and trials come to us as God tenders our heart. Does this mean as a Christian that you should be a walk where people can just walk over you all the time and you just, no, we're not asking you to lay down and play dead. Christianity, friends, is a truthful religion. Christianity is a religion based on objective fact. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is the Savior. There's no other Savior but Him. But Christianity is the same one that says, there is one way to heaven, but let me show you how to get there because I love you at the same time. Darren, how do you put those two together? It's going to be the same equation that God used in John's life. It's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of biblical truth in your life. And it's going to take trial for you to meld those two together. Let's pray as we close out today. Father, as we often say during this study, we do not want to be like John. We don't want to be like Peter. We don't want to be like James or Zebedee or Salome or some of the other names we mentioned today. Father, we, we are grateful for how you worked in their lives. But Father, their story is not our story corporately as a church here today. There may be some traits, but Father, you're going to work on each of us individually, just as you saved us, not because of our mama's faith or daddy's faith or the church, but you saved us individually. Yet, Father, you've called each of us individually to grow through the growing pains of being more like Christ in the body, the local church that we are here together with in Tower View Baptist Church. 
Father, I don't know what rough edges you are working on in people's lives today. It could be very similar to John. It could be very much like Peter or James. Or it, could be, it could identify with some of the other disciples who are much more the church quiet mouse. I, we don't know. But Father, thank you that he who began a good work in us will not give us up until the day of redemption. And even then, to hold us forever and ever and ever. For no one can snatch us out of your hand, Father. And nothing can separate us from the love of God and their height, their death, their principalities, things to come, whatever it is, we are held in you. So Father, knowing that you're holding us in you, would you remind us as a church and individuals today that whatever we're facing, whatever trials we're running from, whatever temptations are before us, that your grace is sufficient for the task. It was for John, it was for Peter, it was for James, it's for everyone who's ever called on your name. Thank you that your grace is sufficient. You are the great I am. And we thank you for that. Thank you so much. Father, I pray for anyone in here without Christ that you would show them the need to be saved, that they have sinned, but greater is he that has saved them than the one who has sinned. Father, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. We pray all these things today in Jesus' name.